The geeks are back and they will inherit the earth or they'll inherit your ears for the next hour or so. This is The Film File. This is episode 79. And we are back. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Meekin. And this is The Film File, your friendly neighbourhood film podcast. The film show for film geeks by Film Geeks, and that'll be us. Andy, it's been a week and I've not seen you. So how are you since the uh, since the last show? I am melting. Um, the, the UK is having a heat wave at the moment. And, and let's make this clear. Hot weather in the UK is a completely different hot weather than what you get anywhere else in the world. Absolutely. This is a scientifically proven fact. I'm sure that I dreamt that scientific proof at some point. <laughs> but this is... This is why that it's a typically British thing to go off to Costa del Sol and to Tenerife and to Benidorm and wherever else and bask in the sun. But as soon as we get that weather over in the UK, we don't want it. We hate it. We feel miserable and we're disgusted with it. So we do uh, nothing yeah. but moan, do it's we? A, it's, it, it's a very hot week. I mean, I always moan about the hot weather because I'm an autumn person. I like that changing of seasons. I like the more temperate. I burn in the sun. And I don't just burn normally. I, I am like a vampire that Blade has just struck a UV lamp on. Uh, <laughs> I completely frazzle and just drop to the ground. So this is not my time of year yet. It's, I've got the door wide open, but the curtains closed over it just in case bees come in because... I hate stingy things with wings. Uh, I've got a lot of th- I've got a lot of problems with summer. Let's be honest. Let's just yeah, be honest. Sounds I like have it. problem with summer. I, th- I think the main thing is Andy is because you know when you go on holiday and you're sat <laughs> on a beach, you're there to relax. But when you've got to work, and, and I'm working at, at home at the moment, you know it's I, I can't work in the garden and do it. I just I, I find it. I am finding this particular spell of working from home quite difficult because i am so easily distracted oh look shiny thing i must go and i must go chase it oh a bee i'll go and rescue it um yeah i'm so distracted and being outside i think would make it more so and also i, I tried it took the computer outside and and it was overheating so uh oh. it was too hot so I, I took it back in because it was cooling down um so i'm kind of stuck indoors and i think that is the issue we like the hot weather, but we want to be outdoors, preferably on some sort of beach where you can dip your toe in the sea, but not in your own house where we're not accustomed in this country to anything like air, air conditioning or anything like that. So, uh, but I, I'm not, not, not enjoying it. I, I'd be perfectly happy. You know how there's some creatures that hibernate over the winter. I'd be happy to hibernate over the summer and then just wake up in the mid-autumn and spend the whole winter loving it because it's my kind of temperature. I love the winter. I love the snow. I love the cold. I'm a weird person. Let's just be honest. Uh, But the miserable weather aside and our gripes about it, you just had a great weekend, haven't you? I did. Thanks for asking. Yeah, I played the first gig I played this year. In fact, we're trying to figure it out, and I think it's coming up to maybe August, August, September, since I last did a show. And it was marvellous. It was a sellout audience. We played a fantastic venue. Uh, and, and I've been debating since we started to show what were not my neat thing is going to be this week. And this was going to be my neat thing, but we'll talk about it now. So it's starting to to uh, to filter down to what my neat thing will be this week. <laughs> and um, the, the, it's a venue in Dudley called the Dirty Rockers Live Music Bar. Fantastic venue. We had a fantastic show. It was one of the first shows that I've ever been nervous for. Now, I normally don't get nervous. I get apprehensive 
and I get a little bit tetchy before because I want everything to be perfect. But I, I was, I was, I was nervous for this one. It's been a long time, and um, I almost didn't feel ready. And that's not because we weren't ready as a band, but I think ready to to get out into the world again. I mean, we are currently celebrating Freedom Day still, uh, which I'll mention after we've talked about this. But it we were so good, um, and it was great that that just like cinemas people want to go out and be entertained in a, in a social group. Uh, people were, were behaving. They all had masks on. In fact, we were the only people who didn't have masks on. Uh, well, at one point in one song, yes, some people even had masks on, but it was just, it's just proved to me that people are anticipating, want to be part of a, a social event, a social scene. Uh, we've talked about it numerous times. We're talking about cinema. People want to share an experience and music and entertainment which, to be honest, from our government, uh, and I don't want to make a political point, the entertainment industry is being pretty much shafted. Sport, on the other hand, yeah, you know what? No. But entertainment, and that's music, live music, um, cinemas, theatres, have, have just had uh, the rough end of, of, of the wedge. Yeah. And it's it's disappointing because I think we aren't a society without, without our arts. And art is a big big word which means a lot of different things to a lot of people but the entertainment side of things um has really taken a bit of a shafting but you know we are where we are and we should be celebrating freedom day he giggles into his mic uh, <laughs> with uh, waiting for boris to pull out his best bill pullman impression and give a rousing but yet waffly speech so um I, it's good to be back in the world but but nervous, very nervous. I don't think the freedoms we've got now are are going to be afforded for much longer. I've got a really sinking feeling about it. Yesterday was uh, Freedom Day in the UK. For those outside the UK, this is what they've labelled the um, return to no restrictions, no legal restrictions with COVID measures. So there's no need to wear masks in public. There's no legal precedent in there that you have to wear them when you're in shops, etc. Many shops are still encouraging people to do it. And I headed off to work yesterday expecting it, to, <laughs> expecting some post-apocalyptic wilderness out there as people are like rampaging through the streets and coughing and breathing on each other. But I was pleasantly surprised on the way into work that on the bus, everyone was wearing a mask again. And even at the shops, people were still wearing masks. And th there's always been the people who didn't wear masks and just said that they they don't have to because they have various conditions, which most of them didn't, unless their condition is wearing tracksuits and living on Manor Top. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> that's the joke you won't get outside of the city. But, outside but, Sheffield, but stay, with us. stay with us. Um, got to work, and the, nearly all of our customers were still coming in wearing masks. I was like, oh, well, maybe not. Things changed. And then I finished work at half past 11 at night and left and saw the queues of people for the nightclubs nearby and thought, oh, this is where it all goes downhill and this is where the problem's starting. Because as you'd expect, all the I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be ageist here, but I'm gonna point out that everyone was under the age of 24, all in mass groups, hugging each other, wearing hardly any clothes, sweaty, drunken, yelling, shouting. COVID central. Well done. The nightclubs, I mean, I don't begrudge the nightclubs reopening. No, I not think at they've all. been really, really slaughtered through the whole pandemic and it's great that they've got a chance but it's clear that it's just going to bring in the whole bunch of people who have not took it seriously 
and give it give it a few give it a few weeks and we'll start to see the repercussions of this freedom day yeah yeah it's uh and you know what and, and part of me doesn't begrudge being young either because no. there are so many mixed messages being sent out of what you can and can't do and if you're given that responsibility and you're young enough to know better and and I was there I don't know how I would have been I I was never I was a rebel, but I, I don't know to what degree I would have done that. But if I'd been stuck and, you know, if I'd have started this and I was 17 and now I'm I'm 19, coming up to 20, I think I'd be gagging yeah. to get into a nightclub. So I don't know. I'm, I'm That's what that's what you get in the void of good leadership, you know, and I, I'm not sure I can blame young people. Not well, not all of them anyway. And and feel as though the the. Um, responsibility should be put on their shoulders um which is clearly it has been the problem all comes once alcohol is introduced because i guarantee that 80 percent of those people i saw like mobbing outside nightclubs last night when they've not had a few to drink would be wearing masks and being safe and cautious but as soon as the alcohol is in the system inhibitions break down you take off the mask you're hugging old friends you that you're interacting with people a lot more and it is because the alcohol has been introduced into the system and that's where the problem is yeah. and that's where that's where the virus is going to keep keep cultivating and growing yeah in no, that I kind agree. Of environment but at some point we had to return to a normal whether we needed to just do it as a literally a ripping the band-aid off kind of approach i'm not sure but we it is what it is and we just have to see where we go from here and what no, the world totally agree. Look like. Anyway, you didn't join us to talk about the world. You wanted to talk about geek stuff. And we have plenty of that over the next hour or so. Well, no, in our case, could even be two. Let's be honest. <laughs> we know no barriers. If you are wanting geek stuff, then there is geek stuff plenty. Andy and I will be talking about the last episode of Loki and all things Marvel Universe and how the ending, spoilers, may affect, or more likely will affect, Marvel. Andy is going to be reviewing this week Fair Street Part 3, 1666, Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, Space Jam A New Legacy, and The Crudes 2. We'll be doing a deep dive into John Carpenter's The Thing, but before any of that, of course, the bit that you really tune in for. You're not interested in deep dives, really. I can tell. It is the segment that is now internationally renowned as. When I say internationally, it reaches some parts of Scotland. You <laughs> are here for Andy Meekins. Exploration, nay, trawling of the World Wide Web to bring you the sequence we call The News. So, Andy, after that build-up, you better have got some news for us. Nope, it's no news today, so just put the end sting on. Uh, yeah, let's start off, as we've been doing for the past few weeks, with the analysis of how the industry is going over this past weekend. So, Space Jam A New Legacy opened internationally, and it looks set to follow the trend of strong opening weeks post-pandemic. It finished the weekend in the US with a, around $32 million take which this is despite it being available completely free of charge on HBO Max, which is, again, another one of the close to strongest figures since the pandemic started uh, for an opening figure and a really good tracking for seeing the future of cinemas. However, at the same time, it is worth reporting that Black Widow is seeing around a 67% drop-off on its second week, the largest drop-off for the MCU since Spider-Man Homecoming. But this is on par with how Fast 9 tracked which shows that there's still COVID uncertainty in the industry, which stops films from having holdovers week on week. 
Disney haven't reported on how the streaming sales went on week two after they'd announced last week that it did really well with 60 million on this opening week, which suggests to people that maybe the drop off on there has been bad as well. With the Disney Plus streaming side, I'm pretty sure that people will invest very, very quickly in whether they're they're going to stay at home and watch it as opposed to somebody yeah. who's going to the movies. So I'm figuring that the first weekend is when you're going to notice your, your, your big impact with your with your streaming side rather than it'd be carried on week after week after week yeah obviously because disney aren't reporting on the actual figures from the disney plus side of it on week two all the negativity in the press is focused on how black widow has dropped off cinema wise across the whole of the us and internationally exhibitors clearly would not be happy with this. In the US, the National Association of Theatre Owners have released a 12-page statement which takes aim at Disney and how they released Black Widow and the whole strategy behind it. Uh, To just give a little quote from it, despite assertions that this pandemic-era improvised release strategy was a success for Disney and the simultaneous release model, it demonstrates that an exclusive theatrical release means more revenue for all stakeholders in every cycle of the movie's life. The many questions raised by Disney's limited release of streaming data opening weekend are being rapidly answered by Black Widow's disappointing performance. The most important answer is that simultaneous release is a pandemic-era artefact that should be left to history with the pandemic itself. So there's a lot of anger getting thrown about. Now, it's very easy at this point in time to pile on the Disney hate, but that would ignore the fact that Fast 9 also saw a similar drop, like I mentioned, even though the streaming option wasn't there for for Fast 9, which makes any complaints about how Disney have approached it a tad disingenuous. It's worth noting that with the upcoming release schedule, which means that there's going to be a huge release pretty much every two weeks from the start of next month. And by the end of the year, it's there's a new film every week that is expected to do great business, even two in some weeks. Most big releases won't have space in cinemas to have holdovers week on week. So maybe this surge of business that you get on week one and then huge drop off is going to benefit all the other upcoming films that are shoehorned in to give us a really, really cinema heavy focused end of year. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, you go into a restaurant, you're only going to order what you want to eat rather than order something you might want tomorrow as well. You know, uh, to use that very poor analogy that I just started and have no idea where I was going with it. <laughs> you know, you 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 limit yourself to what you can afford, basically. And if yeah. next week is another big release, then something has to give. Um, you are trying to get back into, into the swing as well. You know, we are getting used yeah. to going back to the cinema and going, oh, another film I want to see. Oh, and next week there's another film. Uh, eventually, you, you've got to go, wait a minute, I can't see... I uh, can't yeah. keep seeing a brand new film every week and want to go back and see Black Widow again or even Space Jam again. Yeah, we need to stay positive. Black Widow opening release was strong and it probably brought some people back to the cinema who haven't come back since the pandemic started. Now, they will now have confidence to come and see more films and they might not choose to go and see something this week or next week. But Jungle Cruise is a few weeks away. That might bring that family audience in again. And over time, we'll start to see the holdover numbers improve. But the mudslinging and blame apportioning needs to end. The industry needs to work together. So the distributors doing this 12-page thing, having an attack on Disney and ignoring the other distributors who are having the same kind of successes with their films, it needs to stop. Why don't you embrace each other and start working how you can step forward? Yeah, we've got to figure out moving forward because we are still in, as much as we have a freedom day and everything else that goes with it, we are still (laughs) in new territory. Yeah. Moving on to something more positive, um, let's stick with the Disney and the MCU. 
Okay. So I'm going to struggle because I always struggle with this name because I get halfway through it and then give up. Uh, Contessa Valentina Allegra de la Fontaine. Yes. Yay. Did it. Did it in one. Played by Ju- and, and I struggle over Julie Louis Dreyfus. <laughs> oh, you got to leave that in. Got to leave that in. <laughs> Played by Julie Louis Dreyfus. It's going to be a Nick Fury style of character during the phase four, which is dubbed by Kevin Feige. A new beginnings for the MCU. We saw a recruiting US agent, and more recently, we saw her speaking with Elena in Black Widow's post credit sting. And Feige has confirmed that despite having to shuffle the appearances order a bit due to COVID delays on productions, nothing has changed for the character's mission. In his words, because we like to quote Feige whenever we can, initially Val was supposed to be introduced in the tag of Black Widow. The pandemic didn't actually change anything based on where you met her first. She was always going to be a mysterious figure, played by Julia, that stepped out in out of nowhere. We just initially planned for that to be in Black Widow instead of the Falcon and Winter Soldier. She's doing something. She's in recruitment mode. Does Yelena already work for her? They seem to have a connection at this point. Now, the speculation in the fan community, as you'd you, you expect. You surprised me, Andrew. You surprised me. <laughs> as to what kind of team she's actually compiling. And we've speculated ourselves. Oh. We like to speculate. I've mentioned Dark Avengers. Thunderbolts has been mentioned and it is looking likely. And people are starting to also work out which characters she will recruit to give kind of like mirror opposites of the original Avengers team. We've seen Abomination pop up in the Shang-Chi trailer. Is Abomination going to be the Hulk-esque character for the new team? The speculation that Greek gods are coming into it. Will Hercules replace the Thor character for this new Avengers team? No doubt we'll see this all play out over the next phase. And all of our speculations will be completely wrong and thrown thrown in the bin. <laughs> but but it's interesting that she's literally just going to be the same way that Nick Fury was over that first phase, just popping in, occasional scene to go. Oh, I told you about this initiative, and slowly drawing the threads together. Does this mean we're going to get a Dark Avengers film towards the end of this, the same way that we had the first Avengers film at the end of Phase One? Interesting speculation. And we've got two characters already. We've got the Falcon, Winter Soldier, Captain America offshoot which you know the way that he was played made him very charismatic and uh what is usa agent that's the name i was trying to uh, trying to remember so we have that we now have a new black widow we'll have a a new hawkeye in the, the hawkeye tv series so yeah interesting days and you know the thing is with marvel is they've been planning this for three or four years even though we are just finding out i i know enough of their background machinations to know that nothing happens by chance now it all starts to evolve and and i had a great interview with andy park who's one of the concept artists and he's working on stuff that is down the line that that we're not going to get to see for for two or three years it's fantastic and and talking of which then um two or three years this has been speculated now since it was announced i think 2019 2018 and that's marvel's reboot or new version of blade because it seems that as of last night, yep. there was an announcement. As I don't know if it's been an official announcement, has it? That they've locked a choice for director? No, he's been narrowed down and they're in the final talks. Over the past few weeks, the great Lord Feige has been um, speaking with potential candidates for directing the new Blade film, which will start Maya Sharla Ali. I'm getting good with the names. Just oh, not I'm glad with, you're doing it, not, not with me. Julia Louis Dreyfus. We hadn't heard anything since two years ago when it was initially announced that this film was taking place. But Bassam Tariq, 
who has delivered Mogul Mowgli, uh, was one of the ones who's been meeting with Fagey and execs over the past few weeks. And he made the final cut and won the parties over with his vision for what the film will do. Um, Stacey osai is scripting the new take on the half-human, half-vampire hybrid who spends his days and nights hunting down vampires. So something is starting to move forwards with this fil- film, which will go into production pretty soon at this rate. It's exciting because we were only saying a few weeks ago that there's been nothing yeah, about this it film. it really went quiet. But then again, it, it's it's that thing that I've just mentioned. What's going off that that we just don't know about? You know, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, they cast the Fantastic Four, but they are just waiting to to find the right moment to uh, to, to release yeah. details. You know, I think that's how far ahead these guys work. I don't think just because we get an announcement this week means that it's going to happen. You know, this could have happened two weeks ago and now it's getting filtered out. They're very yeah. good at that. And it keeps us it keeps us in in, you know, conversation and it keeps fandom buzzing the, the fact that we don't get the official announcements literally until you can guarantee that if the announcements are happening now they'll start filming within the next two months because that's how it's always worked over the past couple of years with marvel is that they announce something because they're ready to go with it yeah and it just keeps us along for the ride we're not going to get bored of something being announced and then it taking 14 months to go into production we're yeah. ready to just jump straight in um, tom hiddleston also MCU related, is happy to stick around and play Loki for as long as possible. Uh, he's going to be popping up in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, as well as the animated What If series. And in a Q&A on Tumblr this week, he was quoted as saying, if I was asked to play Loki for the rest of my life, would I? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so lucky I've got to play Loki for this long. I feel he's such an interesting character who's been around in human consciousness for so long. He's got so many different aspects, so many different complex characteristics that it feels like every time I play him, I find out something new or we get to evolve him or take him down an avenue that we haven't gone down before. I'm happy for him to stick around. I'm happy. I know. You know what, Andy? It's 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 an interesting, an interesting step forward because normally you find actors they'll they'll take on a role. Um, you look at Doctor Who, for instance. Um, yeah. Give those actors give it three years and then they're ready to move on. And the fact that he's been playing this character for nigh on ten years uh, and still, as he said, finds something interesting because they they played him across the board. If you think about it, from Shakespearean yeah. brother to arch nemesis in the avengers to comedy sidekick in in ragnarok to his own series they've always brought loki back as they have with thor in an interesting and different way each each time that we meet that character and he is to some extent more interesting than thor uh, and that's what taiki watiti brought to the party is to make thor interesting um because he's yeah. he's he's got more foibles and he's, there's there's more there's more tragedy with him. Uh, talking of which, I, I hear that while there is going to be a second season, spoiler if you've not watched the last episode yet, <laughs> but director Kate Heron isn't returning for that uh, second season. And possibly neither is the, is the head writer, from what I've, I've just heard. Yeah, it's it's looking like it's going to be aiming to get a different team on board for the second season, even though the, the team for the first season did a sterling job, which we'll talk about more when we talk about Loki later on. But I, I quite like the idea that they'll replace the creatives for a second season. And if they do that, I'd also like them to then, if they go to a third season, replace the creatives again, so that each time you can get different types of stories with Loki in them. Yeah, I'd like to see a completely different run of of what we do with Loki next time because we're not reliant 
with the Marvel series, uh, series as you are with, let's say, a, a cop show, like a Law and Order. Yeah. A Law and Order always has to come back, or a, a CSI and be the show that it was last season. They don't have to do that with these seasons. They can come back and be whatever they want to be in in a, in a follow-up. On final related Loki-esque news, so Jonathan Majors, who played his is cast as Kang across the MCU. There's been hints that he's going to be popping up quite frequently in future MCU projects, and he's going to be a Thanos-esque kind of villain. However, we don't know which version of Kang is going to be popping up at any point, because the whole point of Kang is that, as was mentioned in Loki, there's multiple versions of him, some good, some bad, across the multiverse. And because the multiverse is opening up, it means that every time you could have a wisecracking Kang, you could have a sinister Kang, you could have a horrific Kang, you could have a completely heroic one, you could have a like completely villainous one. And this is exciting. It, it came about the speculation of him coming back across multiple films when there was a discussion about how they chose the casting and when they chose someone to play the role, they wanted someone who could play multiple personalities from the same person. And in Jonathan Majors, they saw that person. And we'll talk about it later. In Loki, we saw that. Yes. And also the character in the comics has gone through that there's varying different versions of that same character. There was the Egyptian one. Was it Rama Tut? Yeah. Uh, there was Kang the Conqueror. There was Iron Lad. If you remember Young yeah. Avengers, so there's there's been different variations on around that one character within the comic. Interesting. It's all very exciting for them for Marvel at the moment, and I love it when there's a wealth of Marvel news all drops at once because the fanboy inside me just starts like exploding with delight. And that's what they do, isn't it? I, uh, again, if going on precedent, is they do have these these sort of info drops every now and then where a whole bunch of trailers will land around the same time, and then there's a whole bunch of information, and then we get nothing. And it's speculation. And then we get the next sort of info dump rather than getting bits and pieces. Um, Robert Downey Jr. is coming back to the screens because we've not seen much of him since Avengers Endgame, except for Doolittle. Uh, moving on. So he <laughs> joins uh, Park Chan-wook, who is the director, of course, of All Boy, Stoker, The Handmaiden, for a miniseries called The Sympathizer. Downey Jr. has been spending a lot of time actually producing TV. He produced uh, Sweet Tooth and the Perry Mason series. So uh, work will begin alongside uh, director, Canadian Don McKellar, whose work I really like a lot. So it's an adaptation of Viet Thang Nguyen's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Sympathizer, and it's an espionage thriller and cross-culture satire about the struggles of a half French, half Vietnamese communist spy during the final days of the Vietnam War and his resulting exile in the United States. While the lead and much of the ensemble cast will be Vietnamese, Downey has leapt at the chance to make the most of a juicy multi-character gig, bringing to life the main antagonists, all of whom represent a different arm of the American establishment. And that includes an up-and-coming Orange County congressman, a CIA agent, and a Hollywood film director, amongst others. You briefly mentioned Doolittle uh, in there, very briefly. I tried to. One person who popped up in Doolittle was Antonio Banderas, and he's going to be popping up in Indiana Jones 5 as well. Mm, still lots of speculation as to who's playing who in that particular uh, new adventure. Uh, apart from the fact that we know, and I've seen pictures to prove it, that it's currently filming in Glasgow, uh, which yep. is doubling up for New York. Now, I've got a, a, a friend who lives there, took some photographs, which I'll, I'll, I'll pass on to you, Andy. 
of the set and it looks very authentic because a lot of the, the buildings are brownstone and as we know glasgow has doubled up before for philadelphia in uh, world war z but it seems to be that some of the newspapers and some of some of the hoardings are using the year 1969 so we're perhaps further ahead with Indy than we thought we were initially going to be. Yep, details of the plot and all the roles are unknown at this point in time. They're keeping quite shtum on this. Uh, speculation that Abanderas will be playing a villain character uh, is rife, given that that's all that he seems to be playing these days, the aforementioned Doolittle, and also more recently in Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. Uh, but this puts him alongside, obviously, Harrison Ford returning to the role that he just made his own. Uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Mads Mikkelsen, Boyd Holbrook, Thomas Kretschmann, Seanette Rene Wilson and James Gap Mangold directing. I'm excited. I'm getting more and more excited at every announcement on this. And I, I'm trying not to because I remember the disappointment of Crystal Skull. But I can't help but just be drawn into this because Mangold delivers. It does. And you know what? If, if I was James Mangold... He knows that going into this into this film, the disappointment that a lot of fans had for Crystal Skull, and he knows he's got to pull it out of the park and and deliver something that will be a lasting legacy. He doesn't want to be the guy who ultimately came along and failed. He's got to be the guy who went, wow, that was a last exit for Indy that we, we never knew. And we know we can do it because we saw it with Logan. Yeah. I still got to watch his last movie, um, the Ferrari versus, what was it? Oh, Ford versus, Fer- Ford versus Ferrari. Marvellous yeah. film. Really good character, character-led film. Thoroughly recommend Yeah, I've, lo- I've loved his work. I mean, uh, his Three Tenter Humour is a fantastic film, yeah. as was the Johnny Cash story. So I'm a big fan of his yeah. work. Right back to uh, Copland with Sylvester Stallone. Fantastic film. Uh, and he's never he's never let me down. Probably Night and Day is the only thing that I never got into, but that felt like a big studio film rather than anything personal for him. The director of Fear Street Trilogy for Netflix, Lee Janik, which has had a positive critical scoring, including on this show here, and a very good viewership for the service, has been speaking about future plans and teased that there are more tales to tell in Shadyside. One of the exciting things about Fear Street is the fact that the universe is big and allows for lots of space. One of the things I talked about before I was hired was that we have a potential here to create a horror MCU where you can have slasher killers from lots of different eras. You have the canon of our main mythology that's built around the fact that the devil lives in Shadyside, so there's room for everything else. I think my hope is that audiences like it enough that we can start building out more. We can think about what another trilogy would be, what standalone would would be, and what TV services we could spin off from this. Suffice to say, this is one fan of that trilogy of films that would love to see a return to the town of Shadyside pretty soon. I'll talk about it when you talk about the third one, but I'm, I've am i so far only caught the first film, hoping later to catch the second film this week, so I'll, I'll mention it. Um, this is no surprise, and yet it's still good news. Bill Murray is set to co-star in the next Wes Anderson film, which is set in Spain. And we shouldn't be surprised, but we should always be pleased. Bill Murray with Wes Anderson is the perfect pairing. The director's unique approach fits perfectly with Bill Murray's off-kilter style of delivery. 
And he's become a staple in so many of his films. Um, also joining him will be Tilda Swinton, who will be in, in amongst the no doubt massive cast lists that will inevitably, inevitably run out at the end. And also the latest person to step on board the project is Adrian Brody, who worked with Anderson on Grand Budapest Hotel, Fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, Darjeeling Limited, and is in this year's French Dispatch, which we are clamouring, clamouring to see. Oh, the next few months as we wait for that to drop. <laughs> it's Anderson stacking up his cast with all his favourites, and he loves to play with the same pawns every time he makes a film. And each time he delivers on top of it. The thing about working with Anderson is it must be a pleasurable and great experience because all these guys always come back for more. And I was just figuring it out while you were talking then. Bill Murray has been in everything after Bottle Rocket. So starting with Rushmore onwards, he's been a staple. Even if, like uh, Darjeeling Limited, it was just a pure cameo. He's been in everything yeah. that Wes Anderson's done since. Big fan of both, and, and and like you, can't wait for The French Dispatch. A film that was a big influence on me is getting a third sequel or a third part. Uh, Kevin Smith starts shooting Clerks 3 next month with most of the main cast re returning. Clerks is now 27 years old, and I'll tell you why it was a big part of me, because at the time I'd just written my first screenplay and everyone was really excited because Clerks opened the doors for, for new writers and new directors. And my first screenplay, which was bears no resemblance to Clerks, but had that small town sensibility that was very, very talky and not a particular lot of action, got sold. And I've got to put that down to Kevin Smith. The film, unfortunately, never got made, went through several rewrites, several producers. I got paid. Uh, but the film never got made. But that was down to, to Kevin Smith's Clerks. And, and I can't believe it's 27 years old. But it was a huge influence because that's Kevin Smith. And I'm, I'm a, I listened to his um, his Fat Man Beyond podcast, and which I, I like, not always agree with, but I do like. Uh, and I like him. But as he says, you don't have to have had a film school education to make it in this industry. And, and that kind of takes a little bit back to what we're talking about, the, this up-and-coming director for Blake, because I, as soon as it was uh, uh, announced who he was, I looked back over his CV. And he's only done one feature film, uh, but before that he's done a documentary and several short films. And I think it's an interesting time, a little bit like when what Kevin Smith did with Clerks, for, for new directors to, to come along. Uh, and and have a track record that doesn't mean a big budget. We should talk to some film producer people at some point. Yeah, the Clerks 3 has been long in development hell. Uh, Smith has always had the ideas of what he wanted to do with it, but he's always said that he wouldn't get round to doing it unless all the key cast agreed to come back. And the holdout over the years was Jeff Anderson, who plays Randall. He, he couldn't see a point for doing the third film, and so was very adamant against it. But it, we reported on this last year that it was on the set of the Jane Silent Bob reboot that when he had the small little caveat on there, he got talking to Smith about the ideas and realised, oh, oh, wow, that works. And at that point, Clerks 3 became a definite. All the key cast are back. Jeff Anderson, Brian O'Halloran as Dante, Jay Mews, obviously, as Jay, Smith as Silent Bob, and Rosario Dawson, who is in the second film, will be returning as Becky. And like you say, the film is set to start shooting next month. The story is uh, typically meta and also a chance for Smith to draw on his own life experiences. Randall, after suffering a heart attack, starts to reflect on his life and so gathers the gang together to make a movie about his life at the convenience store that started it all off in a typically 
Smith approach. And I quite like that kind of charming approach. It's Smith using Randall as the substitute for his character, his own personal life story to go back to Clerks and reevaluate that film through the eyes of Randall, the character in that film. You see, you had me on Clerks 3 and then you lost me on Meta. And I'll just <laughs> briefly talk about Clerks 2. For the first half, of that was a great movie. And then the second half, it degenerated into pantomime and, and I was solely, solely dis- disappointed with it. For the first half, it was a great movie where, which brought the characters forward, but it got so silly. Kevin Smith, being his own producer, just sometimes doesn't work. It gets caught up in that's a kind of a cool idea rather than it's a great narrative piece of storytelling. Uh, now, I know he has full control over it and can do whatever he wants, but there was that charming clerks where it felt like a, a bizarro piece of piece of life, even though it was an odd piece of life. But I hope that it doesn't become too meta and, and loses heart. Anyway, soon we'll see anyway. The next John Wick film was looking up until this point like it might have missed out one of the favourite phases from the series. As more and more casting had come out, it was evident that someone from the previous films was missing. However, this week it's been revealed that a deal has finally been struck and Ian McShane, will return as Winston once more in this fourth film. It must be difficult casting John Wick because you're going up against Knives Out. (laughs) And surely, (laughs) you know, there must be a casting war between the two. Uh, There was a piece last week about um, Marco Zero uh, from Alita Battle Angel being cast last week. It's a constant... Between that and Knives Out, I'm getting confused as to who and what. I think they should just they should do a crossover movie and that'll explain everything for me. Man, that'd be bonkers. Uh, <laughs> it would, not it? We're excited for a new John Wick film oh, and are. having Ian Machine back on back on board as Winston. Because I think he's a given how the third film ended with him seemingly betraying Wick opens up the possibilities. Was it a double cross or was he doing it to protect Wick? There's a lot to explore with the loyalties of this character. And he's always been kind of ambiguous. So I'm interested to see how he gets developed and fleshed out going forwards. I saw some news this week that the TV series offshoot is uh, is making some headway. After sort of laundering around in sort of development hell, it's had a budget increase. And that's to do with the hotel that we, uh, the Continental, yeah. and the series is going to be based around that. But that's now look as though it's moving forward. Also moving forward, Matt Shackerman is going to be taking the helm on the next Star Trek film for Bad Robot and Paramount. It's been five years since Beyond released, and after many rumours, including the Tarantino Helm project, this project is finally gaining momentum to get back onto the big screen. In the meantime, you know, on the streaming services, the franchise has been continuing to build with Discovery ready to launch season four soon. Picard season two is on the way. Strange New Worlds, the Pike spin-off, as well as animated offerings such as Below Decks. But big screen has seen the series struggle. The new film has a script by Lindsay Beer and Geneva Robertson, and the movie has been fully greenlit. The suggestion that it will be a continuation of the Kelvin Timeline trilogy that saw Chris Pine as Kirk and Zachary Quinto as Spock, although nothing has been confirmed yet. Uh, The production is due to start in spring next year, with a release date already set for June the 9th, 2023. Well, that makes it look more hopeful. Yeah. Now it's got an actual date. Shackman, for those who aren't aware, was behind WandaVision and makes for quite an interesting director choice. I hope it happens this time. Uh, It was announced a couple of years back with Chris Hemsworth returning to play Kirk's father in some sort of uh, uh, time shift storyline, but they couldn't figure that one out. Then, as you said, the the Tarantino version. I hope it's the the Kelvin cast, because I think they were fantastic. They found their feet. I know people kind of slate beyond. Um, I've got a lot of love for it, because it felt like Star Trek to me. It felt like classic series. Trek. It had the fun, it had the energy, it had the characters, and that's the most important thing. It had 
the characters. Yeah, much so than than the second one, which was the big disappointment for me. I loved the first uh, of the Star Trek reboot, yeah. so that was a fantastic film. I think you and I saw it. The second one was very disappointing. It was half of a good film, but Beyond made up for that. Um, so it was disappointing that it didn't come back with another sequel after so long. But let's hope we get that cast back. Uh, and talking of TV series heading to the big screen, that's a segue that I'm going to be <laughs> proud of for a long time. Luther, it looks so as though. Is going to head to the big screen uh, to be directed by, reportedly, Jamie Payne to direct. Now, are you a fan of Neil Cross's uh, Luther? I've not seen any of Luther. I've heard. I've been told by so many people that I would love watching Luther, but I've never got round to sitting down and watching. It's it's not a bad series at all. Quite like it. Uh, of course, it stars Idris Elba, and there have been talks since the seasons on TV finished that there was going to be a big screen version of it. So hoping it happens. Neil Cross adapted The Mosquito Coast for Apple TV and he apparently let slip that Jamie Payne is to direct the film that's going to go to uh, Netflix, I believe. That'll be one to keep a lookout for and maybe I'll get around to watching the Luther series. At some yeah, point. It's, it's worth catching up with. You know, it's it works based on, if it was an American series, you'd think it was really dumb. But because it's British, yeah. it has a certain charm to it and it has Idris Elba in it who just carries it so, so much across. I, I enjoyed it. Didn't love it, but I enjoyed it. Lee Cronin's Evil Dead Rise, the new film in the Evil Dead franchise, has a plot and it has the first casting. So Mia Chalice from Clickbait has joined Lily Sullivan and Alyssa Sutherland to star in the film. And the plot for the film tells of a road-weary woman named Beth who's paying a visit to her older sister Ellie, who's raising her kids in a cramped LA apartment. However, the reunion is cut short when a mysterious book is discovered in the bowels of that building, raising the evil dead and putting the group in a fight for survival in the tower block. Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell are on board as executive producers for this reboot of the Evil Dead franchise. Interesting that they're not going for the cabin in the woods uh, approach and going for an urban feel, which, you know, you've got to shake it up. We've we've been there for two movies and you think about the, the third of the original Evil Dead trilogy. That certainly opened it up into a brand new timeline. So I think it's one of those they can do anything with. It sounds interesting. And just the idea of it being a bit more urban, for me, makes the horror seem a little bit more real. Uh, sticking with horror, and just quickly to say that Firestarter, the Stephen King adaptation, has wrapped shooting, which has been confirmed by a tweet from star Zach Efron, who posted a snap of him and co-star Ryan Keira Armstrong, who plays his pyrokinetic daughter in the tale. The film is due sometime in 2022. Also wrapping filming this week. It seems like only yesterday we were reporting on Black Adam starting filming, but it's wrapped. It's finished. It's in the can. It gives it a full year before the film releases in July 2022 for post-production to play out and all the effects to be added to it. Uh, as The Rock said, this has been one for the ages and easily the hardest labour and toughest grind mentally and physically of my entire career. Worth every second. We're expecting to see the first footage at DC Fandom later this October, where we're also likely going to see trailers for the Batman and the Flash movies. It's also been revealed that the Black Adam director, Yome Colletsera, is playing with some technical wizardry with high-speed phantom cameras, which capture 960 frames per second, allowing for remarkable clarity in slow-motion shots. Uh, that technology was used most recently in Thor Ragnarok to great effect, with the marvellous Ride of the Valkyrie images. So expect something which is as strikingly visual as that image when the film lands. And speaking of Batman, Colin Farrell has revealed that his Penguin character has only got a small screen time in the stacked film. As he said, I'm only in it for five... I'm not going to do the Irish accent because that'd be daft. No, I don't. Just carry on. I'm only in it for five or six scenes. 
So I can't wait to see the film because it won't be ruined by my presence. Like, really, it's a freebie for me. I'll get a little bit uncomfortable for the nine minutes I have and then the rest of it. I can't wait to see how he brought this world to life. So he's basically said he's only in it for nine minutes of the whole runtime. Okay, that gives the impression then that he's the guy behind the guy and yeah. that we're building up to more of the Penguin for a sequel because you don't hire Colin Farrell for one movie for nine minutes without some sort of payoff for a sequel. Quickly, yeah. while we're talking about superheroes again, uh, Black Panther 2, Wakanda Forever, uh, Winston Duke has confirmed the return of M'Baku for that movie, which has already started production. Excellent. And just playing while we're still tentatively in the superhero world, Henry Cavill is starring in The Rosie Project. It's based on the book by Graham Simerson, and the book tells the story of Professor Don Tillman, an autistic genetics expert who never seems to be able to land a second day. He starts The Wife Project, working up a questionnaire to find the perfect partner. That is, instead, he's entranced by the free-spirited Rosie. So Henry Cavill's looking kind of busy because he's in Matthew Vaughan's new thriller, Argyle, and we're still waiting to get the final bit of casting news on whether he is going to do the Highlander reboot. But apparently in his future, yep. there doesn't seem to be another Superman movie. Last bit of news from me. Wes Took, who gave us Midway, is penning a new Thomas Crown affair for MGM. I love the original. I absolutely adore the Steve McQueen film. It's one of my all-time favourite movies. It was one of my um, oversights that I hadn't ever seen, if you remember correctly, oh, yeah. way back in the past. It was one of the very first um, recommendations that you gave me to watch. And I've always enjoyed the remake with Pierce Brosnan yeah, and Renny Russo. Yeah, very good remake. So getting to watch the original version with Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway was an, an instant classic. And both films are really strong. Will this third film third adaptation be as strong i don't know michael b jordan's already attached to play the title role which i'm interested in I, I think he's he's got some acting credentials that could really do it and the story will once again follow a rich playboy who steals art for a hobby but finds himself in a battle of wits against an insurance investigator hired to bring him down but the pair find that an attraction draws them together even as they're working against each other the russos are producing which makes it a bit more intriguing. Okay. It's one that I'm going to keep an eye on because I think Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway worked so well together. Pierce Brosnan and Rene Russo work so well together. We need to see who the second bit of casting yeah, is going yeah, to be. Good point. It needs to have that same kind of chemistry that those pairings had for this to work. I'm open to the idea. I'm not sure that we need it but it might pay out. Yeah, if it's done well, we'll be here in a year's time going, you know what, it was a good idea to do another remake of The Thomas Crown Affair. And that's it for the news. If you're enjoying this show, then please go to your podcast provider and hit that subscribe button because Andy and I need new clothes and your donation to this subscription will help us get the Armani wardrobe we've always wanted. And if you want to know more about the film file, other than what we're wearing, which is just a little bit creepy, then you can do so by heading over to Twitter and following at Filmfile UK. You can pop over to Instagram and see pictures of what, what we're wearing, Filmfile UK. Uh, you can email us podcast at filmfile.uk with any reviews, thoughts, suggestions, ideas, films that you want us to talk about, or just to give us a shout out and give us some feedback. We love to hear from you. As we love doing the show. And as you know, if you are a regular listener, every week we do a deep dive into a classic movie. I don't understand how we haven't done this film so far as part of our deep dives. <laughs> as, and I'm going to get this out of the way. This is my all-time favourite horror movie. It's out there, so you're not going to hear any critique of John Carpenter's The Thing. 
Its origin, alien. Location, Antarctica. Age, unknown. Intent, survival. Destination, man. John Carpenter's The Thing, rated R. The film was released in 1982 and, of course, directed by the great John Carpenter, written by Bill Lancaster and based on the 1935 novella Who Goes There by John W. Campbell. It had already been a film once, The Thing from Another World, which came out in 1951. But this version was a much more faithful adaptation of the original novella. It tells the story of a group of American researchers in Antarctica who encounter the eponymous thing, a parasitic alien life form that assimilates, then imitates other organisms. The group is overcome by paranoia and conflict as they learn that they can no longer not only trust each other, but also trust themselves. It stars Kurt Russell as the team's helicopter pilot, R.G. McCready, and also features Wilfred A. Brimley, T.K. Carter, David Clennon, Keith David, Richard Dysart, Charles Hellenan, Peter Maloney, Richard Mouser, Donald Muffet, Joe Polis, and George G. Waits in supporting roles, and it was very much a guy-only story. As I said at the get-go, I absolutely adore this movie. It, it plays to the right side of paranoia. It plays to the right side of clever. It never fails to surprise me, even though I probably know this film beat for beat. It's it's John Carpenter at the top of his game. I don't think he's done anything better. I've done stuff that, I, that I've, I've liked as much, but I don't think as a director he ever did anything. Interestingly enough, the film was a huge flop when it came out, but earned its reputation on home video and over the years is now considered to be an absolute classic. And of course, it is an absolute classic. To me, it draws parallels with kind of things like Agatha Christie and then there were none, uh, a small group of, of isolated characters who, who are feeding into each other's paranoia, let alone the threat of an alien being. And the same could be said that Quentin Tarantino's Hateful Eight borrowed heavily from The Thing. Andy, tell me your thoughts on The Thing. So The Thing is my go-to film whenever people start moaning about remakes. As soon as a remake is announced and people inevitably say, oh, Hollywood has no original ideas anymore and they need to stop remaking things, I throw out, if they never remade things, we wouldn't have a film as great as The Thing. Because the original film that you've already mentioned, The Thing from Another World, which was the previous adaptation of Who Goes There, I love The Thing from Another World. It's a classic of that B-movie sci-fi of the 50s. It had a great McCarthyism approach to the paranoia going on within there. It had a great design of like the hu almost human kind of vegetation creature. But like you say, it didn't draw from the book as faithfully as what John Carpenter's version did. John Carpenter's version used the names. It used a more supernatural menacing kind of creature in something that can adapt its form and change and mutate whilst absorbing mannerisms and characteristics of everything around it. And it's such a great film. And I've loved this film since I first saw it on VHS as a kid. Early teens I would have been. Wow. Yeah, I'd, I'd, have been, I'd have been just turning through into my teens and it was that early era of VHS. And this was a film that I was aware of when it was getting released at the cinema, because I used to sit up and watch Barry Norman on his film show. I remember seeing clips of the film on that and then realised that I wasn't 18 yet and there was no way I could go and see it because, well, you're only 11. You're not allowed to go and see films like that. And I was obsessed with it before I saw it. And then when I saw it, I was completely 
engrossed in it because let's be honest, the effects work on this are what draw you in when you're young. This is a film that really sells itself on the horror aspect the twisted nature and it's over as you grow up with the film and revisit it then you start to get more involved in the characters the drama the tension but the initial impact is all about how this film looks and these the effects in this i must have broke the vhs tape multiple times i'd have to stay, stick it back together with sellotape from just constantly pausing and rewinding pausing and rewinding because rob bottin's creations and they are that aren't they they are creations they are utter creations they're frighteningly twisted creatively chilling and perfectly used an unfolding dog a chest cavity bite a head that grows spider legs everything is twisted and horrific to perfection and still stands up to scrutiny today they are such perfect effects like i said i saw this initially on vhs and I rewatched it with my mates over and over again through my teenage years. I first got a chance to see this on the big screen around 20 years ago when UGC Cinemas screened it as a classic choice. The print was scratched and damaged, but it didn't d- diminish the experience of seeing the film in that environment. In more recent years, I've seen like a digital restoration on the big screen and it was perfection. The same way that seeing a digitally restored alien on the big screen for the first time was a whole new experience. Seeing a digitally restored version of this was, a, again, a whole new experience. And like I say, over time, my attention has moved away from just obsessing about the great effects work to the characters, to the cast, and the cast are marvellous in it. I believe that Russ, Kurt Russell was already attached to the project before he was cast. He was the last person to be cast out of everyone. Yeah, and, and the character went through many transformations. He was uh, a, a little bit like the uh, the original movie. He was a, a, the square-jawed leading man. But when Bill Lancaster came on board to write it, they they took the characters down. There were initially 37 in the book, down to down to 12. And to, to, cry, to create this ensemble piece with, where somebody emerged as a hero rather than having them as a hero from the start. And and, and you can see that that interested Kurt Russell in the way that he's, he, he performs. He's not there to be the hero. The yeah. McCready character has just fallen into it, and it's about survival. And he's the only one with a, enough common sense to keep himself alive. And, and that's what's interesting. And, it's, and it has a dour edge to the entire entire film, which I think is one of the reasons it, it, back in the early 80s it didn't find its audience. It was maybe perhaps too dour. I mean, Carpenter came along quite late into the game. There'd been a lot of several writers who'd been developing drafts for the thing, including Logan's Run's uh, writer, William F. Nolan, which we'll talk about later. There were there were many drafts, one that was set partially underwater, which was kind of described as a Moby Dick-like story where the captain did battle with a large, non-shape-shifting uh, creature. Uh, Carpenter wasn't impressed with any of the previous interpretations of, of the script uh, and wanted to change the story back into the chameleon-like aspect of the thing. Uh, and, you know, talked to many different writers and then settled on Bill Lancaster, who was probably best known at that point for writing The Bad News Bears, which while not a film that ever did well in this country, in America, it's got it's got huge cult-like status to it. Uh, and, and they developed the story together. And apparently that process alone was, was, was difficult and went through several endings. And you can't talk about the thing without talking about the ending. So spoilers if you've not had a chance to see an almost a 40-year-old movie with a, with a fantastic ending. But um, it is just so downbeat and so... 
uh, has such a, an ominous tone that that runs through it that never never lets up. I think a, a lot of modern horror is has this these elements of of laughs just to help you get over you know one uh, element of, of horror and then you have a bit of a smile and then you get onto the next one. This is constantly constantly a movie about tension. The, the, the trust elements, who are the people you think they are? Is there a way out of it? Are you who you think you are? It's just an absolutely stunning film which succeeds mm. on absolutely every level. I think one thing that helps with the tension between the characters is that even at the start, before the thing is there, this is a group of researchers who have been forced to work together through circumstances and don't necessarily get along anyway. And so there's already some tension there. And the thing being involved in it just escalates that tension and paranoia to more levels it's a similar kind of approach to the laid-back workers who are just doing their mundane routine jobs that we saw carpenter tackle with dark star you've got a very similar kind of aesthetic with the kind of characters who are just like uh big beards and just hanging out Uh, interesting to note that I, i read somewhere that kurt russell took him about 18 months to grow such a beautiful bit of facial fuzz <laughs> to just to look the right part these days these days they'll just put an artificial one on but he spent 18 months in pre-production growing that beard so that he could just go through it and now he's become quite well known for his rather graceful beards in quite a lot of roles since we've not mentioned the score the music yes. that accompanies this film yes well i mean you, you it's again it's one of the things of legend the score they tapped the great italian composer Ennio morricone to to produce the score and then carpenter wrote bits and pieces of, of music uncredited if i remember correctly yeah uh for it and some of the score that morricone produced didn't get used until it got used on on tarantino's hateful eight john carpenter films always had unique approaches to the score and the music and this i think is his most perfect score it's like a heartbeat pulse rhythm that underlies the scoring that just drives it along and keeps the tension mounting. It's as though you're hearing your own heartbeat starting to panic as everything's escalating through it. Absolutely brilliant. I love this film and re-watching it this past week in order to just get fresh eyes from it. I was, it's again, another one of those films that as soon as it's on, I'm not distracted by anything. I also went on to rewatch The Thing from Another World and also went on to rewatch for the first time the 2011 prequel which yeah. I'd only I'd only seen when it initially released at the big screen and I wasn't that enamored with it then it's okay with fresh eyes I've kind of got a bit more from it but the the problem with the 2011 prequel is that it doesn't know if it's a prequel or a remake because it basically is set in the Norwegian outpost that precedes this film but it then plays exactly the same scenes and exactly the same beats as John Carpenter's version, making it completely pointless. Yeah, I mean, there's been talk of sequels. Uh, Ronald D. Moore, who's probably best known for Mm. Battlestar Galactica, had intended to do a sequel. uh, And then that developed into being a a miniseries for TV. Um, The the prequel is, is just okay, but it's just unnecessary. It doesn't add that much into the mythos because you know where it's going. In fact, spoiler, the, the last few shots of the film basically echo the beginning of uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. So it's it's just redundant. It's not a bad movie. It's, it's not badly made. I think there's a there was a better movie in, in the script than actually got, got made. But ultimately, it, it was just, just pointless. Uh, probably the best sequel to The Thing was a Dark Horse comic where it was called Thing mm. From Another World, which carried on with the uh, absolutely 
fantastic nihilistic ending of, of the original with the McCready character, which is probably as close that you will get to a great sequel to the thing and um worth checking out if you can find it anywhere i've got uh, the limited series run but it was it was a fantastic story and there is again as ever there is talk of either a remake or another version of the thing or a sequel to the thing in some kind of form of production but nothing will take away uh from from john carpenters because he had the guts to make something that that was nihilistic that was depressing that had a, a different kind of viewpoint and as I said, this wasn't a successful film. It went up after the critically and commercially successful E.T., which is more of a fan, family-friendly version of an alien. Opened the same day as Blade Runner, and it only went on to to earn $33.8 million, but it was mm. regarded as a critical and commercial failure at the time. But it found its home on home video, and for that very reason that you mentioned, that you could, you went, oh, my God, I can't believe I've... Uh, uh, I've, I've seen that and, and you go back and you rewatch it and go, oh, my God, that's amazing. How did they do that? And it's still one of those films now where you look at and go, how did they, they get this done? Because it's, it's all practical of, uh, effects and it's absolutely, absolutely brilliant. It's still to this day. Uh, it, it just gets better when some films don't age. Well, the thing about the thing is it just ages and keeps changing and changing into something new with every viewing. I don't think we can speak any further after that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to watch The Thing, it is available on home release. And is it out there on the streaming services, Andy? I know it was. Only for rental at the moment. It's not available for free streaming. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favour. Pick a night, no disturbances, and watch The Thing. So, that's The Thing. And the thing about this show is we do movie reviews as well as deep dives. Andy, what reviews do you have for us this week? Because I'll be honest, I've not had a chance to see anything new, but all being well, that's going to change this week. I have started on the Fear Street trilogy and I'm one down. So can we start there and we can see if I can... Uh, I can interject at any point. Okay, let's start with Fear Street Part 3, 1666. <laughs> We can end the curse. For Shady Sun. What the hell? You see it now. Sarah! The devil has come to feast on our misdeeds. And his darkness grows within each of us. Sarah Fear, you know nothing good comes from those what's after sundown. We'll follow you forever. What happens now? Yes, the trilogy comes to a close as the Fear Street analysis of how myths and legends morph through retelling over time comes to an end. As seen at the end of the second film, Dina is shown visions of Seraphia's life in 1666, and it's there that this film picks up 
and we see the events that led to Seraphia in the past being accused of witchcraft. The settlement is called Union, the town that preceded Shadyside and Sunnydale, and Sarah and Hannah have a secret love. But after the pair get intimate, the town begins to suffer misfortune, culminating in the pastor murdering the children of the community in a bizarre ritual. When Mad Thomas reveals that he saw the two girls intimate in the forest, they are accused of witchcraft and must fight to survive as the town works against them. However, as you've come to realise while watching this series of films, not everything is as it seems, and these curses and tales are distorted through misinformation. The third film plays into the pagan witchcraft genre of horror well, and once more some well-worn tropes are rolled out, but once again the film plays to surprise and unbalance with revelations, altering perceptions, now we know the truth behind the curse that's affected the future set films, and the last act of this film jumps us back to 1994 and picks up the tail end of that film as the new insight into the origins is found and a way to break the curse is revealed. It's important to note that whilst the Seraphia aspect of this film could easily be seen as a standalone film, as a whole, this is not a film you can watch without having viewed the previous pair. And why would you? It's called part three for a reason. As a final chapter to the trilogy, it wraps up the loose threads well and actually serves in my opinion, to be the strongest of the three chapters. I've enjoyed this whole trilogy. I've enjoyed the backwards manner of storytelling. It's allowed us to uncover actual truths that were distorted through Chinese whisper-styled retellings of the curse over the years, in the same way that the kids in the 1994 are discovering them piece by piece. It's been a sharp way to deliver what would otherwise be a generic horror series. I enjoyed the first one. My missus didn't. She thought it was a kind of generic horror piece, but I I liked it a little, a lot more than she did. I didn't love it. Uh, I am though interested in seeing the follow-ups, and and it held my attention to want to know where the story is going. Um, so, out of the three, which one do you think was the the best one? Can you can you recognise that by having seen all of them? I rank the third one as the best, the first one as the second best, and the th- the second one as the least okay but it's a trilogy that works so well together that i feel that i need to watch them all together now and then maybe they'll all score the same because they they can be considered one story cool what else have you got for us space jam a new legacy oh really see i never really liked the first space jam what'd you do to my son the only way you're getting your son back is if you and i play basketball wait welcome to space jam what's up dad i'm shorter than kevin hart we're going to need the most powerful team. This guy? Yeah. He's explosive. Just give me the ball. Aren't you supposed to be good at this? <laughs> Disclaimer, I was never a big fan of the first film. I know it's much loved by a number of folk, but the majority of those folk were kids when it got released. And so have that nostalgic clouded memory of a film that, they think was great, but they've not watched it since they become an adult. I was an adult like yourself when the first one got released and it was an average film at best. So I approached this film with low expectations. So with that aside, if I was to say that this film makes the first film look like a much better film on reflection, (laughs) that should convey how I feel about this one. Problem with this film is that once again, we have a film that thinks it's being very cleverly meta with a gag. See Fast 9 for how this kind of gag irks me. With a scene in which LeBron James is pitched the idea of adding him to a wealth of Warner Brothers films and in turning it down saying he's a sports star, not an actor and nobody wants to see him in a film. 
<laughs> see what they're doing. They're doing oh, a nod I to the see. audience to excuse the fact that he's a terrible actor and shouldn't be on the big screen. He's garbage. My issue is not only is this a droll attempt at humour, but it's also simply lazy writing to cover up the actual failings that they recognise the film has. They're basically saying, we've delivered something which is rubbish, but we know it's rubbish, so it must be good, eh? Uh, don't get me wrong, a meta dig can work. See the Jump Street films, for example. The Jump Street films did the little meta knowledge of like, we're going to reboot a franchise that has uh, been done before and didn't quite work. Great, but not when the film is trying to draw away criticism by making clear how the filmmakers know it's got problems. This film has a lot of problems. Attempting to shoehorn every Warner Brothers franchise ever into the film gives us a film that teases how it could have been really clever with some movie world crossover segments, but instead gives us a Matrix opening parody two decades too late, a Casablanca scene that has no relevance to anything, and other such blink-and-you'll-miss-them moments. In addition, let's be honest, just like the first film, this film plays to a young audience. And indeed, kids are loving it. I'm seeing kids walking out of the performances excited. They've loved it. But the myriad of references in here are playing old to an audience who will disengage from the rest of the film because of how bland it all is. By the time the Looney Tunes themselves are given an unnecessary 3D rendered makeover, I was done. I didn't care about the outcome of the basketball game or whether LeBron would reconcile with his son. Forget dribbling up the court. This film is drivel up the court. Oh, moving on, moving on. So my next one is another one that I wasn't enamoured with the first film. So Crudes 2 landed this past week. We're the Crudes. We are the, the Bettermans. Better Welcome to A Better Way to Live. This place is changing everyone. Give this place a chance. Do I have to like him? Grug. Gruggers. Grug. You have to be nice. I don't know if cave people belong in a modern world. We're evolved people. Maybe we should take it down or not. The Croods, a new age, ready PG. The fact that the Croods got a sequel came as a shock to me. The first film didn't really blow anyone away and was just average at best. It had years in development hell. The sale of DreamWorks led to it getting canned at one point, and then it underwent multiple rewrites, and it was looking like it'd be, you know, an absolute mess. But you know what? I had fun. I had a lot more fun with this film than what I had with the first Crudes film. It surpassed the first film easily and ended up being a fun take on a meet the parents style of comedy. The Crude family find an idyllic habitat owned by the Bettermans. Get it? Better man. Um, a family that raised Guy before the first film and the higher up the evolutionary chain than the Crudes, which gives a chance for the clash of ideologies approach. However, the Paradise piece is set to be disrupted by the arrival of the Croods, whose approach to survival makes them more suspicious and adventurous than the closed-in Bettermans. The voiced cast are great. Ryan Reynolds is back, Emma Stone's back, Nick Cage is back, Catherine Keener, and they're now joined by Leslie Mann, Peter Dinklage and Kelly Marie Tram as the Betterman family. Most of all, however, this film has an energetic vibe to it and a solid sense of fun. It knows what it is and it plays about with it well. It also got an important message about accepting and working together regardless of what your differences and how we can all be better people than the Bettermans. Great family entertainment. This is an ideal treat to take the kids to see during the holidays while it's playing at the cinemas. The kids will love it. The adults, there's enough to latch on in there. I thoroughly enjoyed this film. Recommended. I, I didn't enjoy the first one. but However, my 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 lad has watched the TV series. And so I've got to know the crudes better through that and sort of seen them develop. And I think that's what's kept the series alive long enough to, to mm. be the sequel. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good family film. My final review is my pick of the week. This is my recommendation to everyone out there to go and watch. And that is Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. I feel like we lost our shimmer. Let's do something different. Should we try those socks with individual toes? 
Ladies, I just got back from vacation. Gorgeous men packing their speedos. What's the name of the place again? Vista Del Mar. You of the swordfish. Room number again, please, sir. Six eleven. Six eleven. Six eleven. We're in one twenty four. Now I've heard about this because it came out in the States, I think last summer, and we've just been waiting on it uh, for some kind of release since then. Yeah, it dropped on Sky Movies this week and I sneered at it. The poster for it made me go, oh, oh, I'm not sure about this. The write-up for it made me go, uh, I'm not sure. But Kristen Wiig's name was in there and that intrigued me enough to give it a shot. And within the first few minutes, I was belly laughing out loud. Barb and Star are middle-aged friends who lead very plain lives. They're apprehensive about trying something new and they hesitantly take a holiday to Vista Del Mar where they find fun, love and a secret plot by a Bond-style villain to destroy the resort with mutant mosquitoes. Oh, and a talking crab. Seriously, this film is an absolute surreal blast from start to finish. It's ridiculously hilarious. Intermittent musical moments of hilarity-infused lyrics. The idea is silly. The cast are having fun, clearly. And the whole thing is a joy. From small lines of dialogue that are packed with ridiculous nonsense that you might miss the first time round, but wait until the second rewatch and you'll catch the rest of them. Things like, a person's face can tell you a lot about how they look. What? <laughs> to crazy backstories, the villain backstory alone just keeps delivering more and more and more ridiculous levels as it gets told. This is a film that holds up to revisits, and I am looking forward to revisiting this on a regular basis. Kristen Wiig and co-star and writer Annie Mamolo are just the right side of annoying as Barb and Star. Enough high-pitched and babbling to make you irritated, but also enough heart to make you actually care for them. And Jamie Dornan, as the henchman turned love interest, is a comic revelation. I did not think he had such comic acting chops. Wig also gets to have fun as the villain in a second role as Sharon Fisherman and relishes the moments, chewing the scenery around her. This is an absolute treat of a film. I cannot urge you enough to get onto Sky Movies and get this watched. I had an absolute riot and aching sides by the end of it and i'm looking forward to going through that much pain again well you know my my love for Kristen wig is is huge though she never calls i, I i'll <laughs> give that a, i'll give it a go your recommendation and the fact it's got christine wiggin so spoilers we are now going to be talking about the last episode of loki which premiered on disney plus last wednesday um the day after we record the show, unfortunately, with uh, uh, Disney Plus's new opening, because Wednesday does seem to be the prime day to to open their new shows, and we are slightly behind. But by now, I'm guessing if you're a fan, you will be up to date. And if not, you'll have watched everything. If you didn't watch, uh, watch it in that first go, you'll be up to date with the entire series. So let's cut to the chain. Uh, he Who Remains is played by Jonathan Majors. So it was announced some time ago that the actor best known for Lovecraft Country will be playing the character in the next, the third Ant-Man film. Um, so it was always going to be, is he or isn't he going to appear as the sort of guy behind the door in the last episode? So this episode, as pretty much like the first episode, was very, very talky, which had Loki and Sylvie enter the new realm, enter the castle to find he who remains there. So yes, it was a great thrill and a great way of paying off an introduction to a character that has been sort of a, a bit waiting for Godot, has been around the the edges. It it did remind me in a lot of ways. I don't know if you saw this, Andy, of, of Wizard of Oz. You know, the guy behind the curtain, and um, 
to some extent, I sort of critiqued in the previous episodes that if you introduce Kang now as the major bad, when, you know, most procedurals, there's usually a hint as to who, who the bad guy is going to be, that it, it, that it wouldn't pay off. But it did wonderfully, down to the fact that Jonathan Majors just had a lunatic performance and covered everything from all-out craziness to, to melancholy. Uh, and the fact of the, the repercussions it had on the rest of the Marvel universe. And we can't talk about this, this episode without that, that glorious shot of the, uh, the other timelines and how the multiverse will affect all the Marvel films going forward. This is, you know, for a very low-key episode, no pun intended, <laughs> of characters sat around a room talking, the ramifications of this are, are pretty huge. And if anything that, that's been a, a bother for me about this series, and, and it's through no fault of their own, is that COVID made an impact, and it, and it, and it has felt particularly talky. In, and very little on action, apart from a big fight and a dramatic kiss. Not an awful lot as far as action happens, but an awful lot happens as far as plot. Andy, what did you think? This was a closing act of the series that was predictable to anyone who paid attention to the titles of upcoming films and cast announcements. We knew it was Kang. We've speculated since the second episode that it was going to be Kang, and we just saw it all realised. So there was no real shocks or surprises, but I, I loved... I loved the talky aspect of a climax. I loved Jonathan Major's interpretation of the eccentric Kang, the one who's been alone and isolated, trying to keep this perfect timeline to stop darker versions of himself from infiltrating the universe. And that's what it was about, is Kang. This was a paranoid Kang who knew how bad he could be and was trying to stop himself from being bad by separating all his bad personalities and blanking out their existence. The story is also about how pruning the timelines is removing free will, and that's what the core essence of this whole series has been. It's been about the multiverse is all about free will. If you don't have a multiverse, then you are not making decisions on your own life. Someone else has made them for you. And it's going to be interesting, like you say, to see how all this is going to seed and play through going forward. We already know that What If is next, and that is a direct offshoot from the end of this with the multiverse opening up. What if this happened? What if that happened? We start to see the alternate timelines. Doctor Strange, Spider-Man, everything is going to be picking up from here. Loki sharing the embrace with Sylvie. Come on, what's more perfect than Loki loving himself? Well, that's, he's never going to love anybody else, isn't he? He's always going to love himself. He's the ult he says many times within the, the series that he's the ultimate narcissist. I completely enjoyed this payoff to the series, and I'm, I'm looking forward to revisiting the series and watching all six episodes again and le seeing how it threads up and leads up to it. But it was great to just get a chance to see, because I was expecting them to reveal Kang, but not actually do anything with him in this one. So yeah. it was great to actually have him be a core focus for the whole episode and see how Jonathan Majors can really, really deliver. He's absolutely fantastic. He's confident. He's enigmatic. He's also twisted and disturbed. But like I've already said in the news section earlier, we might be seeing a different version of Kang in future films. We will see different personalities played out, but I'm already sold on the casting and I can't wait to see more of him. And we know there's going to be a season two. Uh, I'm looking forward to that that nice little bit of a climax of where uh, Owen Wilson and Wumni Masaku as as Hunter B15 and Agent Mobius not recognizing our Loki 
So we're already into a different timeline. It was good to see Owen Wilson back. I don't think he had an awful lot to do in this episode, but his personality just just runs through the entire se- series. Great casting choices, a marvel, fantastic at the, their casting. Yeah, it's been a, a rocky road. It's not the series I've loved the most. Uh, I still think um, WandaVision is is the best thing they've done. Did feel like an mm. awful lot of setup. Was very talky in places. Took its time to find its feet, but. I am looking forward to seeing where it's going. And the fact that Tom Hiddleston is returning to play Loki, and it just makes me very excited for where, and, and also there's some amount of trepidation as to where it's all going to go and and what we what the Marvel Universe is going to be. And I, I just had me musing for a minute, how are they going to replace um, Black Panther? Well, you know, now you can bring back Michael B. Jordan as an alternate from another universe. It's it's sort of opened up those kinds of ideas that uh, yeah. It, the, the the entire thing can go anywhere. Uh, and just to leave it on that, if you think I'm evil, just wait until you meet my variants. Coming up this week ahead of us at the cinemas, we have Off the Rails, a British feel-good movie. And we also have one which we've been biting at the bit for, which is M. Night Shyamalan's Old. On Now TV and Sky... Every Breath You Take is a psychological thriller with Casey Affleck as a psychiatrist whose life is thrown into peril when the brother of patients who took his own took their own life enters his family circle. And over on Netflix, we've been speculating whether it's going to be good or not, but Kevin Smith's Masters of the Universe Revelation Season 1 will be landing. So we'll report back what we think about them. Maybe it'll make the neat things, maybe it won't. And that's it for this week's show. Hope you've enjoyed it. But before we go, as ever, we'll give you our neat things. A neat thing you ask? Yeah. Anything that Andy and I have enjoyed, watched, played, ate, you name it, if we've enjoyed it, it's our neat thing for the week. Andy, do you have a neat thing? Yes, my neat thing this week. Um, I've become quite obsessed with another YouTube channel. Now, I go through these phases. I latch onto another YouTuber and just immerse themselves in those videos. Over this past week, I've become quite obsessed with Dr. Mike on YouTube. Have you seen any of Dr. Mike's stuff? I've not, no. Dr. Mike or Mikhail Varshovsky Dio. It's a practicing doctor in American healthcare who does informative videos on medicinal matters and life in the medicinal world. In addition, he casts his eyes over representations of medicines and surgeries in the media and entertainment sections with occasional forays into analysis of shows such as Grey's Anatomy, Scrubs and more like that, pointing out the truths and the fictions, as well as he started looking at like TikTok trends and things like that and it's basically such a charming personality he's so engaging and informative and it's quite easy to fall into a two hour four hour six hour whatever <laughs> chain of his videos one after the other i latched onto it because he did like a, a watching of a couple of episodes of scrubs like because people are recommending you should watch this and let us know what, how truth truthful this is and he's he's witty he's really engaging and i was watching him like dissecting scrubs episodes it's like oh he he then does one on house md let's watch that one oh he's also talked about the covid crisis oh he's talked about this and i was just clicking the next video button constantly give him a check out check out his stuff like i say there's some serious stuff that he does but there's a lot even the more serious stuff he's got such a engaging nature that he makes it informative but entertaining at the same time Absolutely great channel, Dr. Mike on YouTube. That reminds me for my neat thing for for next week, which is a, a, a YouTube uh, show that I've been watching. So my neat thing is it's over 50 years old. 
but there's there's relevance to why it's my neat thing. Yesterday, I, I learned of the sad passing of William F. Nolan. Now, he was an age 91. He was an author and an author best known for the book Logan's Run. Uh, he co-wrote it with George Clayton Johnson, who, interestingly enough, wrote the screenplay to the original Ocean's Eleven movie. This is a book that is is my favorite science fiction book of all time. I can go back to it and it never feels dated. It was written in such a way that the prose are, are almost like haikus. It was written in a sort of a youth speak at the time, which strangely enough is a, is a youth speak of, of today. Very short, sharp clip sentences, uh, lots of slang terms. So if you don't know it and you only know it by by the movie, which is we're going to talk about on a deep dive, it's basically set in a dystopian future society in which both the population and the consumption of resources are maintained in an equilibrium by requiring the death of everyone reaching the age of 21, not 30, like the movie. The story follows the actions of Logan, who is a sandman, who, who are, they are charged with enforcing the ruling, tracks down those who run and kills the citizens. Uh, from society's lethal demand. And he only ends up uh, alongside Jessica Six running himself. Uh, it's still a, a great book, still waiting for that fantastic uh, film to be made. Even though I've got a lot of love for the uh, Michael York uh, 1970s version, I still think there's a version to be made where the characters are only 21 and really does the book justice. So even though it's nearly 50, it's over 50 years old, uh, and due to the fact that William F. Nolan passed this weekend, my neat thing is my favorite science fiction book of all time, Logan's Run. And that's it for this week. We'll be back next week. We've got another deep dive for you. More film news than you could be able to shake a film news uh, stick at. Lots and lots of reviews. Andy, anything planned for the uh, next couple of days? Work, work and more work. Oh, and uh, melting, melting and more melting. He's melting. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I'm just going to try and stay. And I'm working from home at the moment. So I'm trying my hardest not not to melt at home so we'll see you next week but i don't know what the hell's in there but it's weird this stuff.